Could I ask you to pray with me for a moment? Lord, I ask that the words I am about to speak reflect your wisdom, your knowledge, and your guidance, and may they be acceptable in your sight. Amen. In 2008, in the United States, 17-year-old Samantha Eloff went looking for a job, as many young people do. She had an interview with the well-known retailer Abercrombie & Finch as a sales associate. Did she get the job? No, she didn't. Not because of any questions about her competence and abilities, but because she did not meet the dress code of Abercrombie & Finch. You see, Samantha wore a hijab. In 2015, the courts handed down decisions in two cases involving Trinity Western University, a Christian university in Langley, British Columbia. The university was contesting the decisions of the bar associations in the provinces of Nova Scotia and Ontario not to permit graduates of the university to enter the bar in those two provinces because the bar associations felt that the university's community covenant, which all students were required to sign, and which prohibited sexual activity outside of the marriage of one man and one woman was unacceptable. In 2012, in the country of Myanmar, there were massive riots involving the majority Buddhist population and the Rohingya people, a minority Muslim population in that country. The results were that 140,000 Rohingyas were confined to refugee camps and 100,000 fled across the border to Bangladesh. Earlier this year in 2015, Daesh, also known as ISIS in Libya, executed 30 Ethiopian Christians because, as ISIS says, they were servants of the cross. So what do all these things have in common? What they have in common is that they are attempts to limit and eradicate religious freedom. What then is religious freedom? Well, scholarly, scholarly analysis can get quite complex, but the acceptable definition is that contained in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights passed by the United Nations in 1948. And that says, everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This right includes the freedom to change his religion or belief, and freedom, either alone or in community, to manifest his religion or belief in teaching, practice, worship, and observance. The working policy of the North American Division of the Seventh-day Adventist Church goes a bit further. It says, religious freedom consists of the inalienable right to believe and to worship God according to conscience, without coercion, restraint, or civil disability, and to practice one's religion and promulgate it without interference or penalty, and of the obligation to grant the same rights to others. When we in Canada and a few other countries look at religious freedom, we tend to focus on a couple of things. 
freedom of conscience, uh, can we worship the God we wish? And freedom of assembly, can we gather together to worship our God? Both of these are given in Canada and a few other places. So we then focus on a subset of issues related to things like, can we work in a workplace which respects our religious beliefs? Can we have education for our children where our religious values are accepted and respected? Can we have teachers who share the same faith as we do? Do the textbooks explain the values that we share? And even such things as if the municipality of Belleville tomorrow decided they didn't like any signs along the side of the streets, would the elimination of the sign out here constitute a violation of our religious freedoms? But elsewhere around the world, religious freedom has a different context and a different tone. For example, are we able to even start churches? Are we able to preach in public? Can we distribute religious literature? Can we meet with more than 10 people at a time to worship our God? Can we receive funding from abroad? Must we register our churches with the government? Is our property owned by the state who can then do whatever they wish with our churches whenever they feel like it? Will we be arrested for blasphemy? Will we be arrested for treason? Will we be killed? So why should we care? Why should we care about religious rights? And why should we care about religious rights for, say, Jehovah's Witnesses who teach false doctrine? Why should we care about religious liberty for Catholics who, who are members of a church which for centuries persecuted those who did not conform to their man-made beliefs? Why should we care about religious freedom for Muslims who aren't even Christians and besides that are going around killing us? I think there are a number of reasons which we need to look at. Christians have been persecuted ever since religion, Christianity started. As Paul said in Acts 22.4 when describing his time as Saul, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. And when Paul was converted, he too was persecuted. As he said in 2 Corinthians 11, five times I have received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one, Three times I have been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And the early Christian church was persecuted by the Roman Empire because of the refusal of Christians to bow down and worship Caesar. And when the Roman Catholic Church was established, that began a millennium of persecution by the Roman Catholic Church of those whom they described as heretics who would not accept that the rules of our God were changed by men. But this persecution has gone on for centuries and centuries around the world. And to look at it, it's a real litany of tragic events. In the 1600s, for example, all the Christians in Japan were gathered together and executed. There weren't too many of them. In the uh, 
Caliphate, Tamerlane the Conqueror, massacred tens of thousands of Christians. In the Mysore Wars in India, every Christian that could be rounded up was displaced and their churches burned. 500,000 Christians were martyred in the Soviet gulags. 50,000 Christians languish in labor camps in North Korea. The Pew Research Institute says that Christianity is the most persecuted of all religions in the world. And they report that between 2006 and 2012, Christians face harassment or worse in 151 countries around the world. Next to them were Muslims in 135 countries. So we know persecution. We as Christians understand what persecution is. And so if we know and understand what persecution is, surely we do not want our brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever their church, to suffer that persecution. Surely we would want to minimize the persecution that our brothers and sisters face. A question, a question for you to answer. What's the population of the world at the present time, roughly? Seven billion. And how many uh, Adventists are in the world, roughly? 18 roughly 18 million. My math is not very good, but that comes out to 0.25%, which means that only one of every 400 people on this planet is an Adventist. And in how many countries in the world are Adventists in a majority? None. So our church is a minority. Our church has always been a minority. And the fact of that minority status underlies the position of the Adventist church on religious freedom. The church in its early days was extremely concerned about any possibility of laws being passed that could limit the rights of Adventists to worship as they saw fit. And a traumatic event for the church happened in 1888 when the U.S. Senate attempted to pass a Sunday law. They were unsuccessful, th thanks largely to intervention by Adventists. This led, in fact, to the formation of a National Religious Liberties Association in 1889, whose Declaration of Principles said, we believe it is the right and should be the privilege of every man to worship according to the dictates of his own conscience. And Ellen G. White said at roughly the same time, we are not doing the will of God if we sit in quietude, doing nothing to preserve liberty of conscience. So Adventists are very interested in defending the space to worship against incursions from society. We have to recognize that our doctrine is sometimes misunderstood. People are confused about it, or it's not accepted. We heard in the mission story this morning the description at the beginning of the story that some people thought Adventists were crazy. Some people still seem to think that Adventism is a cult. And quite frankly, we should be aware that there are people out there who don't like us. If you go on the internet, you can find lots of people spreading mistruths and outright lies about our church and our doctrine. So we need to be vigilant. 
and Adventism itself has not been spared from persecution around the world. A few years ago in Serbia, slogans were painted on Adventist churches saying, Death to Adventists. In Togo, an Adventist preacher was arrested for no good reason. In India a little while ago, there was a dispute because Hindus claimed that the Adventist church was forcibly converting Hindus. In the Solomon Islands, just a month or so ago, an Adventist church was destroyed by Anglicans, actually. But we have to remember, too, that the Adventist church has as one of its goals spreading the gospel message around the world. And we want everyone to have the opportunity to hear that gospel and to find salvation through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this can best be done in an open environment where we as Adventists can freely preach that particular message. We as a church also recognize that if we want others to respect our religious rights, we must respect theirs. As Matthew 7:12 states, Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men do to you, do even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It's the Bible itself that actually provides the best reasons for supporting religious freedom. Genesis 2:16 and 17 state, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden of Eden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Verse 16 gave the man, Adam, freedom to eat whatever he wanted in the garden of Eden. He had that freedom of choice given as a gift by God. And when we look at verse 17, God did not say it is absolutely forbidden that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You will not do it under any circumstances, period. He said, if you eat, you will surely die. So we have in those two verses the essence of freedom. You have the freedom to choose, but there are consequences to your choices. And the issue of freedom is something that is spelled out in numerous places throughout the Bible. For example, Deuteronomy 30.19 says, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live. We remember the plea of Elijah shortly before he battled the 450 priests of Baal, what he said to the people, choose God or choose Baal. And we've been studying uh, Jeremiah just recently. And what was the choice that Jeremiah offered to King Zedekiah? Go to the king of Babylon and save Jerusalem and your own life. Don't go to the king of Babylon. Jerusalem will be destroyed. You will lose your life. The New Testament, too, provides evidence of support for freedom of choice. Look at the story of the rich young ruler. After he had gone away sad because he had great riches, what did Jesus do? 
He did nothing. He didn't say, come back here, we have to discuss this. He didn't say, you have to change your mind. He accepted the choice that the rich young ruler had made. And we know the rich young ruler suffers the consequences of that decision. I'd like you to turn your Bible to Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56, which I'll read. And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face, and they went, and entered into a village of the Samaritans, to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, will thou that we command fire to come down from heaven, and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them, and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. So look at the key elements of that particular story. One, the village chose not to receive Jesus Christ. His disciples wanted them to be punished severely for not receiving Jesus Christ. Jesus said, no, that is not the way. And finally, they went to another village. Again, Jesus did not force the village to accept him. He accepted their choice, their freedom to choose, and he moved on to another village. So we all have freedom to choose in so many different areas. We would hope that at the ultimate level we would choose God, that we would choose to seek salvation through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But we have freedom of choice in many other areas. As George Knight, the Adventist writer and scholar, says in his book Exploring Romans, we are not pawns in the hands of an all-controlling force. We do have choices in life. God gives each of us freedom to sin if we so desire, or freedom to walk in the path of holiness. Through the gift of the Spirit, we have genuine choices. And if we have freedom of choice, everyone else has freedom of choice as well. The gift God gives is to everyone, everywhere. And so, if we respect that, we respect the fact that people, other than ourselves, have the right to choose their worship, their religion. The scripture verse today, which I will read again, is a key element in why we must accept religious freedom. As Matthew 22, 37 to 39 says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. That is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And the issue of love is a central theme of the New Testament. The requirement to love is demonstrated in many texts throughout the New Testament. First John 4.21, And the commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. Romans 12.8, 
Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. And a few verses later in Romans 12.10, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. James 2.8, If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. And 1 John 3.18, Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And who, of course, can forget Paul's beautiful description of love in Corinthians 13. So all of us are called upon to show affection, consideration, benevolence, goodwill, kindness, respect, and concern for the lives and well-beings of everyone on this planet. We are asked to love our neighbors, but who is our neighbor? I think as we, we appreciate that the, the story of the Good Samaritan demonstrates to us that everyone is our neighbor. Jesus chose the Samaritan very deliberately in his story. Why? Because the Samaritans and the Jews to whom he was speaking did not really get along. They came from different nations. They have different ethnicities. They had different religious beliefs. They didn't interact with one another. They did not talk to each other, as the story of the woman at the Samaritan woman at the well shows. Even when traveling, Jews would go around Samaria rather than through it. In other words, they didn't like each other at all. But if a Samaritan, who was the worst that the Jews could find, could provide this kind of assistance, could not any other person? And Jesus says, go and do likewise. So if he's speaking a Jewish audience, asking them to do good to a Samaritan, could he not then ask us to do good to other people? But Jesus goes even further because he wants to block any kind of loopholes that we might try to find. Too many of us might grudgingly say, oh, okay, I will do good to my neighbor, but my neighbor is not really those horrible people over there who are doing all sorts of nasty things to me. But Jesus preempts this by saying in Matthew 5:44, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And Paul was a good example of this. As we saw, he was persecuted by the Jews, thrown in prison, beaten, stoned. Yet he continued to pray for the Jews. He continued to pray for their salvation. He continued to pray that they would accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So if we truly love others, we want the best for them. We want the best for everybody. We want them to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior because that is the best that any of us can have. But we also want them to have the best lives possible, which is why charity, as we understand it, is such an important thing. And we want them to live in an environment which respects their personal beliefs and allows them to worship as they choose. After all, religious liberty is for everyone, everywhere. Thank you, and God bless.